Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. It didn't feel like I was talking with a pastor or a teacher. It was like my friend that I'm telling a dirty little secret to. And very quickly that turned into, well, have you ever kissed a boy? Um, Have you ever done anything with a boy? Or have you ever let a boy do this? And that, it was a very slow blurring of the lines of what is appropriate and not appropriate. Hi, Survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yay, another episode. Another episode. And guess what? Where are we today, Tara? We are in Dallas, Texas. For Obsessed Fest. Tara, I think you're excited to get down with who? The drag queens. You are all about the drag queens. It's going to be fun. But there is some breaking news that we want to share in a case that has literally been at a standstill for almost 20 years. 18 years to be exact. She went missing May 30th, 2005. Yes, in Aruba. And that is the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. Joran Vandersloot, uh, a judge, released today that he confessed to her murder. I'm really grateful that there's some closure to this, but you have some more details, Tara. Her mom, Beth Holloway, gave a statement saying basically that the case is closed. You know, this isn't really closure for them, but the case is over now. Yeah, and he admitted, and we're not going to get into the details of what he did, but it was absolutely horrific. Um, And he also took the life of another young woman, uh, Stephanie Flores, I believe, right? Yes. Which he and he's had a long history. He was extorting the Holloway family, and that's what he was currently incarcerated over. So he was incarcerated for the other uh, Stephanie Flores's murder, and then he was facing charges for the extortion of Natalie Holloway, and then that's when he ended up confessing, and it was confirmed by a polygraph. Yeah, because the, the judge made him take a polygraph. I mean, look, this is a bad dude that will never be see the light of day prayerfully. Um, but our prayers go out to the Holloway family and it seems like Beth has some, has some closure with this. So yeah, it's been a long time coming. Yes. We have a fantastic guest on today's episode, Rachel Peach. Yes. I love Rachel Peach. I actually connected with her right as the Dirty John series came out. And another friend told me about her and her story, her horrific story. And I really got to connect with her as a survivor. And that was honestly like the first survivor I really got to connect with after my trauma even. And so I'm really thankful for her coming on and sharing her story today because, you know, it happened near me in Canyon Lake, California. Yeah, This guy abused and groomed other girls. Yeah. And the church that were his students. I remember this case because I remember reading about this and just, man, <laughs> these these are bad, bad people. Thank goodness for Rachel. She's had some resolution. She's happily married. She's living her best life now. And she's going to tell us all about her story. So what do you say we get into it? Let's get into it. 
And so I finally reached out to the detective and I just said, Hey, uh, if you have time, can we talk? (laughs) And I called him. And I mean, this was the first person that I'm ever saying these things to. And even like listening now to my interview with him that was all recorded, the language and the way I'm describing things, I still carry so much of the blame in the way that I am talking about what happened. And even then I gave him just the tip of the iceberg of things that happened. I didn't, I didn't even want, there was things I didn't even want him to know about. And, but it was still like, I help with this because I, I'm scared he's going to get away with it now. And I'm also seeing the hell that April is going through with finally being brave enough to say something and then it just being shut down. And the people that are supposed to be there to protect us and help us are straight up lying to the police and just feeling so defeated and hopeless that he... All of, he's going to get away with everything and I have a way to stop it, but I don't want to. <laughs> and so I tell the police a little bit about, you know, what happened. And of course, you know, do you have any kind of evidence? Are there any screenshots, any text messages, any, I don't know, pictures, notes from the past. And I'm like, no, I don't have anything on me. I'm like, but, um, I might, <laughs> So before I left California when I was graduating high school and I was leaving and moving away, I had a, I had a big box and it was filled with, he had given me notes, there was letters, there was poems that he wrote. Um, he was really good at drawing, so he would always draw me pictures. He had given me necklaces, even a ring. I mean, it, there was a lot of stuff in this box. And... I didn't want to take it with me because it didn't belong in my next chapter of life. And I didn't want to get rid of it as far as like burning it or something, because I felt like it was, this proves that it was real. And if I get rid of it, it's like it never happened. And there was a part of me that knew maybe one day I would want to prove that it was real. And so I went in the Ortega mountains and I buried it. And I knew I, I love that. Sorry. <laughs> I knew you would like that too. <laughs> and I there was like the Ortega Mountains like separates Orange County from Riverside County. And there was this one street that it was not a busy street. You would only be turning off of it if like you lived off of it. So there's no traffic. And there was this big tree kind of on this turn. I knew exactly where it was. And I went up there and I buried it. And in my mind, I'm like, I could just come back and get it one day. (laughs) And um, I said, and I told him this, I said, so this is a long shot. I'm like, but I do. I said, it's buried up in the Ortega mountains. And he's like, are you kidding me? I'm like, no, I say, he's like, okay, go on Google Maps, circle where it is and send it to me. And I'm like, I know it like this was eight years later. So this is a huge long shot. But I'm like, hey, I mean, that's why I put it there. <laughs> and so I sent it to him. But I definitely still my first interactions with this with the police and with the detective is I definitely had a bad taste in my mouth just based on shutting the case down for April. And 
I felt like maybe they weren't taking it serious or I felt maybe you don't believe me because it's a church and you don't think that a pastor would be capable of any of these things. And the next day he texts me and he goes, Hey, can you FaceTime? I'm like, sure. So I hop on a FaceTime with him and he's standing at the tree and there's an entire crew of police and fire department and like forest search and rescue and like a full on excavator. And they are digging up the Ortega mountains to find this box. And I like had this overwhelming, like, you believe me, like you, like you want to find this as much as I do and I'm being heard and I'm being listened to. And it definitely changed my outlook and relationship with this detective. And he was up there for probably four or five hours and they didn't find it. And I felt so like, oh, like I thought we would have gotten it. And he's like, it's a long shot with like forest fires and mudslides and you know, you never know. He's like, but we can't find it. And so it was also like, like it, he's like, what else are we going to do? And he says, well, in cases like this, where it's you coming forward years later for something that happened, you know, you don't have evidence. We do what is called a pretext phone call. And it's where you as the victim call the perpetrator and you just get him to talk about it. So you recreate your evidence. And he says, all we need is an acknowledgement just the smallest acknowledgement that something happened. And he's like, would you be up for that? And I was like, if this is my one shot, like, why not? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I could do that. And he prepped me on, you know, how to do it, what to say. And I kind of saw my window of, I kind of knew where Victor was going to be or who he was going to be around. And I was going to be by myself as well. And I text the detective, I said, I think today's the day I want to do it. And he's like, all right, like, you know, we got this. So I text Victor and I said, I'm the only one that knows what's going on. It's either now or never. Can we talk? Because I knew that he would not say no to that. And he said, I'll call you in 20 minutes. And so I immediately am like, all right, like, we got this. So I, it was all in a recorded line. So he calls me and I immediately go into it. Like I'm trying to help him. And I said, you know, I'm so sorry for everything you're going through. This is horrible. And I said, you know, I don't even know if April's telling the truth. I can't believe these crazy things that she's saying about you. You know, I'm, I'm the one that's now manipulating him. And he said, you know, I know, I, I can't believe that she'd be saying these things. And I'm like, I guess I'm just a little concerned, though, because some of the things that she's saying sound an awful lot like some of the things that happened with me. And I said, and I guess I'm confused because you told me that I was the only one. And I said, so was I not the only one? And immediately, no way. Of course, you are the only one. I would never do this with somebody else. And I knew right away, I'm like, well, this is easier than I thought. And I said, well, I'm trying to figure out the statute of limitations. I'm like, it, has there been enough time? Do you remember how old I was? I'm like, what year was that? And he was like, I don't know, ninth, 10th grade. How old were you? And I'm sitting there like, oh my God, <laughs> like, 
okay, I, I guess I got a case. And he continued to talk about way more than I had ever even told the police. And I hung up with him. And I like, I knew in that moment, like, I think something's gonna come of this. I think this is, this is good. So the next morning, I called the police. And he's like, Hey, did you get it? Like, can you send it over? And I'm like, I guess I don't know. I'm like, I don't know what you were looking for. But I think I got something. And so he calls me a few hours later. And he's like, Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> I'm like, Well, was it good? And he's like, Was it good? He's like, We got ourselves a case. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm crying for you. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. And so I knew like, it changed my confidence of like, okay, like this is, I'm not as scared anymore. I'm not as worried as, you know, I, I was more scared of coming forward, saying something and nothing getting done. And it's just, I finally had the courage to say something and then I, nothing happened and I just lost it. And so then I saw April the next week. And I'm like, Hey, I need to tell you something. I said, so, um, another victim came forward this week and, um, that victim was me. And I said, but I think we got a case that I think this is going to turn around. I think he's going to get arrested. Like this is, I don't know what's happening, but something's happening. And it was a couple more weeks. It was the end of July. I remember it was July 27th, 2018. And he, Victor, I knew had, he kind of knew that something was coming. And so he was kind of avoiding Riverside County, thinking that he can get away with it by just not coming to Riverside County. And um, someone had reached out to me with information that they knew he was going to be at a certain place at a certain time on a certain date and you do what you want with that information. And they had previously had a warrant for his arrest um, a week prior and he didn't show up to where they thought he was going to be. And I told the police that information and he said, all right, we'll get him tomorrow. We'll try again. And that day, I mean, I was so anxious with, what was about to come. And it was a couple hours later, I got the message that he had been arrested. And there was, I mean, a mugshot, the the whole thing. And obviously, it was a lot of relief that it's finally happening. He's finally, I can stop stressing about this. I was not expecting the messy complex emotions that came with it like the first time seeing a mugshot because it made it that much more real and i remember that moment i i immediately felt i felt horrible and i i was celebrating the fact that this long intense police investigation is done as far as we got an arrest but it was also i I felt like I was betraying him and I felt, I felt bad that I was doing this to him, even though he deserved this and this was his fault. I still carried this. It it was very messy. It was very, a very complex feeling. And that was July. He was arrested. 
by November, he was in prison, which is almost unheard of in most cases. And um, he ended up pleading guilty to all seven felonies. Um, Through the investigation, there was around a dozen girls that went to the police and spoke with the police um, from our youth group. There was four of us that had pressed charges. And then at the end of all of it, there was three of us that actually stuck it out um, through the whole thing. And on November 13th, he pled guilty to all seven felonies and waived his rights to an appeal. And it was no longer a he said, she said. I mean, it was pretty cut and dry about what happened. Uh, We all went to court to give our victim impact statements. And that was also a very jarring experience as we're sitting there discussing the horrible things that this man did to us. And he's laughing um, in the courtroom or shaking his head in disagreement with certain things that we were saying. Um, And it was also what uh, one of the girls that were involved was younger than me. And that just carried a, that put a lot of weight on me that and I, I know it's easier to tell survivors, like it's, 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 it's easy to say, like, I, if I would have said something, it wouldn't have happened to her. And you shouldn't be carrying that blame or guilt. But it's way easier said than done. <laughs> and definitely had this very intense feeling of, you know, if I would have said something earlier, so and 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 so would have been spared from him. Um, and that I mean, that was just that was a very hard process to go through. Um, And then it was also at this time that I filed a lawsuit against the church um, because I was not okay with how any of it was being handled whatsoever. And um, I filed for negligence of sexual assault and that turned into a five year litigation process. Um, I was not the only plaintiff. So obviously that made things, a lot more complicated with more plaintiffs. Um, but I mean, all of us deserved to be able to file a lawsuit. And I'm very proud that we were able to do that. Um, and that ended not even that long ago, just a couple months ago, actually, that that finally came to a closure and it was settled in my favor. And um, that's something I'm very proud of because as proud as I am that I sent him to prison and I was able to see justice criminally. I also wanted to see justice civilly because Victor would not have been able to exist without his place of employment for 20 years that enabled his behavior with teenage girls (laughs) and his employer that he had for 20 years that let him do whatever he wanted. (laughs) And the environment that created this monster And then when it's finally brought to light, you do nothing about it. And I was not okay with that. And so after a very long and tiring process, um, I was able to see justice both criminally and civilly. And that is not something that I take lightly because I know of so many survivors that they only wish that they can have either one of those. And whether it's, you know, the laws with your state or the statute of limitations or whatever it might be, 
they're not able to see that. And so I that is not something that I take lightly whatsoever. And I guess I've, I've really tried really hard to try to make a difference as far as with statute of limitations appeals or anything that can change those laws to help other survivors. Um, because it's, it's so it's such a shame that we finally have the courage to speak up and say something. But because there's a timeline on the law, you don't get to see justice now. And that's, that's just not, that's not fair. <laughs> and that's something that I'm extremely passionate about now is, you know, trying to change those laws or trying to change even just the viewpoint on sexual assault and when survivors come forward and say something just because it was five, eight, 10, 15 years ago, that does not go away. <laughs> and yeah. so I guess all that leads to where we are now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then I heard in California, but I don't know if this is a rumor or not, just another survivor told me this, that recently they just changed the statute of limitations for sexual assault with if you were a minor. Yes, that is true. So um, that... I, I think they might be implying the civil law. So criminally, um, if it's, I don't want to quote this, but I'm just going off of my situation. If there is rape involved when you are a child, um, there is no statute of limitation. Okay. Um, and civilly, there was a cap. So it used to be um, you can only file civilly if you are up to 26 years old. The minute you turn 26 and on, you weren't allowed to file a lawsuit. And this all came about when I was 25 and my birthday is in July. And so when I started realizing, I think my statute of limitations ends when I turn 26, my lawsuit was filed. My birthday is July 18th. My lawsuit was filed July 17th, 2018 which is the last day that I was 25 years old so that I made the cap literally by a day oh and gosh. which was very crazy. Um, that law has since changed though. And that's thanks to Harvey Weinstein. Um, those survivors were able to change the law. So now that if you were sexually abused, um, the, it opens up like, a, Oh, I'm sorry. Harvey Weinstein changed it so that NDAs are no longer allowed. Okay. So there, there is no NDA at all allowed in a sex abuse lawsuit, which is why I did not have to sign an NDA. Um, but the window did change um, in the last few years. So now um, if you were abused as a minor, you're allowed to file civilly and the statute of limitations is very loose on it now. So okay. California is actually very progressive when it comes to um, sex abuse laws that other states can definitely catch up to. Well, I just heard about that from other survivors because, you know, just me being in the role that I am, um, I hear a lot of stuff and then I support a lot of survivors. And I was like, okay, because they were telling me that I should charge against like someone something that happened to me as a kid mm -hmm. and whatnot. And I was like, I don't know if I want to go down that road route like that route you know what I mean because it is a lot and 
like I've already called this person out in ways. I've mm -hmm. already made reports on CPS for them. <laughs> so, you know, I'm seeing what is what I need to do for myself. Yes. And if I press charges, does that further help his children or does it further like hurt his children? You know what I mean? Like if he can't, I don't know. There's just so many things like, and there's also that guilt that goes with it. It's just like, we that happened to me when I was like a toddler. So now I feel guilty for that. But, you know, this is about you. So I'm sorry I brought this up, but it just reminded me of like, you know, and I was giving yeah. you some context of like why that law, they wanted to do that with me. But how I know you're doing a lot of stuff now and you're living in Florida and you're kind of living your best life, at least in my opinion. <laughs> what are you doing now with your journey and being an advocate and everything? So I feel like the chapter of life I'm in is I can finally take a freaking breath <laughs> because Especially the criminal side ended, but then we immediately just shifted into civil side. And both of those sides were extremely traumatizing. <laughs> and especially if you keep in mind, I this came about in May and he was in prison by November. That's six months of I'm like, I, I get to the end of November and it's like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and then welcomes in the civil side of everything. And if you've never been involved in a lawsuit, there is so much red tape. And I I do not do well <laughs> with red tape. And so it was like I I had to filter everything in my life because the risk of, well, if we're in trial, this could come up. If we're in trial, you have to think of this. So it's like, Oh, you shouldn't be wearing that. You shouldn't be talking like that. You shouldn't be posting that. You shouldn't be doing this. You know, you, it was like, I had to be the perfect victim kind of, and I, I'm not good with that. And I had to keep up with this, not keep up, but it's like, I had to play this identity because it's always in the back of your head. If a juror sees this, what would they think? What would they say? Would they believe you? And I, that it's like I lost myself and I was so caught up with trying to be this person that I was supposed to be and how a victim is supposed to be viewed. And also during that time with, I mean, during litigation, there's, you know, depositions that we had to go through, um, which is very intense and um, psych evaluations that we had to do. I mean, it was a very intense process that you're not allowed to talk about at all. And I, I, I felt like I just lost who I was and what I thought and what I'm allowed to feel, what I'm allowed to say, what I'm allowed to do. And so um, I, I'm not saying that in like, a, I regretted it. I do not regret doing it. I'm very proud of myself for sticking it out. Um, but it was a very hard process. So then when this came to an end and it settled in my favor and I saw the result that I wanted after five long years, it was like, I took a step back and I'm like, I don't even know who I am. <laughs> like, 
I was so lost in all of this and so caught up with this and so anxious and worried. And this is at the forefront of my mind that once it ended, it's like, well, well now what do I do? <laughs> and I feel like these last few months, I'm finally able to just be my true self. And I feel like some people, it's like, she never talked like that. She never did those things. She never acted like that. And it's like, that's always been me, but I was never allowed to be that person because it just the, if you've ever been in a situation where you're just waiting for a court date, you're waiting for a trial, you're waiting for that call from an attorney, you're trying, I, I just hate this trying to be the perfect victim kind of fit. And so now I'm just being me and I can finally breathe and I can finally not have to worry about what people would think. And the truth came out and the truth was told as I knew it always would be. And I no longer feel, I, I felt like for a long time, especially these last five years, I was constantly trying to prove to everyone that I was telling the truth. And I was constantly trying to, if once they learn about this, then they'll believe me. Once this comes out, then they're going to believe me. And I put so much of my healing on the backs of people that don't, don't even care about me. <laughs> and I finally was able to get to a place where I'm like, I don't care if you believe me or not. And it's not going to change anything if you do or not. I'm going to heal regardless now because I deserve to have healing. I deserve a good life regardless if you believe this or not. And so I guess all that to answer your question, I'm just finally being me <laughs> and finally breathing and finally, I don't know, finding what, what I want to do next and what I think and what I believe. And well, yeah, that's a very long answer. <laughs> I love that. No, and I feel like a part of the journey is you have to do that. Well, there's a couple of things that, that really strike me about this story that I think are, I would say that really hit home for me. So one of the things is when I was in foster care, I was, my foster parents were into Stephen's ministry, which is like a Catholic thing. Okay. I remember going to like different church groups, like, and there was another um, friend that were, they, they were apostolic Christians. So I would go, I would try to escape from foster care and go to these church groups. And it was something that really hit me that was very poignant that you said is that when you were talking about very early on about how he was telling you these things about the church and it felt like he was letting you in behind the curtain and you felt very special about mm -hmm. that. And I remember feeling that same way. Now, I wasn't being groomed for any sort of nefarious purpose, but I was being treated as an adult and I was let behind the curtain. I just, it really affected me because I can see how that is so manipulative. Now they weren't yes. trying to manipulate me, but I remember feeling like not special, but like I felt like I was engaging with adults and outside of, a, of an area where I was, where I was in an abusive situation in foster care, right? Where I was able to like talk to other adults that, that were, in independent of them, even though they weren't, if that makes sense. Yeah. But just that connection and just to, to it really breaks my heart because to see how they've that, how this perpetrator manipulated that. And obviously not only did that with you, but the, the girls before you and the girls after you, it just is. When you said, you said it was IFB. Is that correct? 
Yes, which is known as, well, it's Independent Fundamental Baptist, but it's IFB. So that's not Bill Gothard, because that's, Bill Gothard is more Christian, not Baptist. Yes. So it was a circle. So his circle was IBLP, and I'm blanking on what that even stands uh-huh. for. But he was a huge name. And then it was like our circle came from that to go start their own little circle. Got it. But I mean, the teachings and everything were almost identical. And I don't know if it was just, I don't know what the differences were. And I really didn't care to even find out. But it was the the way women are viewed and treated and the rules and the standards and the doctrine and all that. It's all exactly the same. It's so all the same. His teaching was very heavily in our religion. Got it. So, I mean, obviously, because he was—he's also faced his own allegations and you yes. know, happy, shiny people. I was discussing with another survivor that we had on the program, uh, Lindsay Williams, who was involved with the IBFB or whatever it is, mm-hmm. Bill Gothard. I remember kids that I also grew up with very early that weren't allowed to have, to, weren't allowed to watch television, weren't allowed to, like everything had to be, what is it, secular or non-secular? I don't know the difference, but it had to be, like yeah. they could only listen to Christian music. You, they couldn't watch anything that wasn't a Christian movie, like, you know, the Omega Code and so and movies like that, if you remember, like those were the things that they were allowed to watch. And I was like, this is really weird. Like, you know, um, and just the way that, that like everything for you was controlled like in a self-contained world. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a bubble that we lived in. And I mean, so much of these abusive church environments, it's so much about control. And so not just like control of what you're doing while you're at the church, but even outside of it. So like trying to encourage you to not even own a television because it was the outside influence was wrong as far as like, you know, if you watch the news, it's all biased. And so um, what, like why you don't need the television to watch that. You don't need to be watching movies because it's that outside influence. Everything was so controlled so that if, which is like a great indication <laughs> if something is a cult or not, if you're trying to control yeah. information that people consume, because if they hear something that contradicts what you're saying, it makes them ask questions and they don't like questions. And so, I mean, even with like going as like no social media allowed. And I mean, at that time, anyways, it was even like, why do, why do adults even need social media? There's no reason that you would need social media because it's another way of trying to have control to prevent any kind of outside influence from coming in that can make you question anything. And so when you already live in such a bubble and you don't, the only community you have is that church family. This is all that we got. I mean, Monday through Sunday, I'm with the same group of people. And it was also very like, if you, if they heard you talking bad about a leader, a pastor, a teacher, you would get in trouble for it. You weren't allowed to say it was actually a rule in the rule book that said the adult is always right, even if they are wrong. That was the rule. (laughs) I mean, it was you are already being taught and groomed to not question adults, to not question authority, to just do as you're told, listen as you're told. And I mean, all of this sets up for such an abusive environment to happen. Because if you are being told that the adult is always right, even if they're wrong, 
Meanwhile, he's in the back of the bus with you with his hand up his skirt. You're, how are you supposed to understand that? That you're being taught this is right, even if it's wrong. And especially with the amount of pressure that's put on women and girls there. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's an environment set up for abuse to just flourish. And that's exactly what happened, which it's like, no, duh, no surprise it happened. That, that if this is how it was set up from day one, what did you think was going to happen? Do you think that that kind of conditions, like, well, not conditions, but, like, does that, like, make you the perfect prey for these type of predators where it's, like, okay, now they see, like, oh, because she's, you know, has to think, like, I'm the always right and I could do this. So do you think that that kind of creates that scenario where you're not able or just, like, you're perfect like your prey, you know what I mean in a sense? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have no doubt that that is why Victor ended up as a youth pastor for 20 years because it was nothing but a praying ground for him. I mean, it wasn't that he it, he saw it as his opportunity to have unlimited victims at his dispense. And if anyone were to say something, who would they believe in the situation, him or them? Obviously him. <laughs> and this was also actually something that like, a huge part, I mean, I, I, I don't blame myself anymore. And one thing that um, really helped, obviously, just like getting older, now that I walked into my 30s, I'm like, when I look at a teenager, like they are an infant in my eyes. <laughs> and it completely changes how you kind of view yourself at that age. But also um, in his deposition, he talked about, which was kind of an eye opener to me to just how calculated predators are. Nothing is an accident. Everything is extremely intentional. And in our youth group every year, I don't know if it was like the beginning or end of a school year, we would do like a questionnaire that he would pass out to everyone. And it was just like an updated, like, get to know me kind of thing. And it was like, what's your favorite candy bar? What's your favorite Bible verse? Or like random things like that. Or like, what did you do this summer? Like, I don't know, something like that. And it would also have your phone number on it. So if like you got a cell phone that year or whatever it might be, you would put your phone number down. And in his deposition, he was asked something about... um texting with girls and like how that would come about like what he asked for their phone number or like what happened there and he said that he would use those questionnaires to then go back on to get their phone numbers and use that as a way to be like hey like oh I saw you did this this summer or whatever it might be what their answers were wow and it was this realization of like I remember doing those every year we would fill those out and I'm like, you're telling me that was nothing but a way for you to get underage girls' phone numbers to text with so you could eventually sexually assault them. Like, that, this was all calculated. This wasn't an accidental, like, oh, I, some, one thing led to another. No. <laughs> this was this yes. is exactly how predators think. <laughs> and I think that's the most insidious thing is what you just pinpointed right there. This wasn't like an oopsie, like, oh, we just, we got to know each other. This was that. And that to me is 
the most frustrating thing because I saw that he was released. He was only in there for two years. He got yes. five years, which seems like a slap on the wrist to me. Yes. Um, and he was released in two years, especially with a with a pre this because it's premeditated, right? It's not this yes. like oh I got close to her, I had feelings for her. It's I was a a serial predator using these documents as a way to just groom them. Has he re-entered the church? To my knowledge, he has not. Um, he was released in 2020 due to COVID. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not going to get into that, but, <laughs> um, and from there, I, I, he's, he's a registered sex offender for life. Um, and I, 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 my, the detective really helped me like accept that as the life sentence. Um, and I didn't understand it at first. I have no one in my life that's a registered sex offender. <laughs> um, sure. and now knowing like, you're not allowed to live here. You can't work here. You have to register here. I mean, it's not a fun life being a registered sex offender. <laughs> and so I, I do try to look at the positive that that's the life sentence he's going to live with till the day he dies. Um, but to my knowledge, he has not re-entered the church scene. And I pray to God that that does not happen. And it is unfortunate because he's not so registered sex offenders are not allowed near a school, near a park for the safety of children. But they do not view church as that. And so yeah, they exactly. view That's why I was asking. the state views church as rehabilitation. And so it's crazy to think that this was a youth pastor that abused kids for 20 years and he can go to church on Sunday and nothing would happen. Yeah. And that is scary to think about. And also, I think one of the things that I have, I have a hard time with in my situation, I struggle with a lot. I don't have a hard time with it, but I struggle with it for sure is this, you know, there are people that are very very into a religion and and the teachings of the bible and the teachings of the new testament and then say well if they repent then they are you know they're reformed or or they've repented and they're if they've been redeemed by the blood or whatever whatever jargon you use right and i don't mean to offend anyone mm -hmm. but i think about that with my father my father always tells me well i've repented i've i've exposed I'm like, you murdered my mother. You premeditatedly <laughs> murdered my mother. Like, I look at the same thing. Like, you you literally were filling out questions, taking numbers from questionnaires that you had girls to fill out so you could groom them and sexually assault them. It's, it's staggering to me that people accept that and that he may even be allowed in these communities because they re he's been redeemed. Yeah. Well, something that... I'm sure you two have experienced this is I experienced firsthand and I still see it happening is how quickly people move the goalpost for survivors. So yes. what started as I'm going to come forward with this horrible thing that happened and it's immediately, well, hold on. Let's wait for the facts to come out. I, I don't want to pick a side Let's wait to see the facts to come out. So it's like, okay, I'll prove to you I was telling the truth. So the facts did come out enough for a police officer to believe what I was saying with sufficient evidence for a warrant to get him arrested. 
So now he's arrested. So it's like, okay, I got you the facts. Well, hold on. It's innocent until proven guilty. So let's wait and see what happens because I believe in innocent until proven guilty. Okay, true. That is how our court system is set up. Even though that's not what you told me the first time, but okay. So then now we're going to go through this and he pleads guilty to all seven felonies and waives his right to an appeal. He says he did it. He's pleading guilty that he did it. And then it's, well, I think you should just forgive him. So it's constantly just moving this, hey, I was waiting for the facts. Okay, I brought you the facts. Well, innocent until proven guilty. Okay, he's guilty. Well, why can't you just forgive him? And it's just this constant toxic cycle of moving the goalpost for a survivor so that nothing's ever good enough. (laughs) It's always placed on the back of the survivor to be the one to bring the facts to you. Okay, I did that. We'll prove he's guilty. Okay, I did that. Okay, well, now you need to forgive him. And it's, I mean, forgiveness is a whole other topic to get lost on, but it's just something that I've I observed and I experienced firsthand and I I see it all the time now with survivors. And it's such a shame that what I don't know why anyone feels the need to put a timeline on anything we're doing (laughs) and put a timeline on any kind of healing as far as, well, he said this, you know, he's sorry he did this. This is none of your business. (laughs) I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like whenever someone puts the pressure on me to get better, why aren't you better? That's when I get worse. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) That's when I I spiral. (laughs) I also think it shows just how people, how naive and dumb they are to trauma if you have not experienced trauma. And It's interesting, even I I was a little naive about it myself, because I I was thinking, once the criminal stuff is done, once the civil stuff is done, it all goes back to normal. And all of this goes away. And I'll just have my normal life back. And none of this will affect me anymore. Just got to get to this. And it's like, I got to that. (laughs) It never went away. (laughs) And I'm like, the normal never came back because the normal is gone. That's been long gone. And the normal life that I thought I had was me not processing or not healing my trauma and just leaving it not to be dealt with. (laughs) (laughs) And so the it's, I don't know. And it, it was something that I had learned that I'm like, Oh, wait, trauma doesn't just go away. <laughs> Those intrusive thoughts and memories and PTSD and nightmares just because the criminal side is done, just because a civil side is done, doesn't mean those are done. Those are here to stay. (laughs) Yeah, and I know Collier can speak a lot to that even of just, you know, what it's like to go through the court and then after everything's over, like you still have to process that trauma still even more. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it became the whole impetus for everything that we're doing right here, right now. You know, it's why I started on this journey when I was a child. Was, uh, you know, I looked at how, you know, the bad guy goes to jail, the victim is dead, the state gets his restitution, the gavel hits, and the judge says, you know, next, and, and we move on, and we don't look at the effects and consequences of violence. And 
that was something that always bothered me <laughs> a lot, <laughs> a lot. And uh, we never examined the, just the, not only the impacts on, on victims and, sur and quote, survivors, but also families, communities, churches. Uh, you know, um, uh, we as a country as a whole, how this collective trauma, um, you know, creates this ripple effect that we just don't even see. And that and it often comes up to manifest itself in other ways, in other situations that we don't even see that we're completely blindsided by. To, mm -hmm. And I think that that's why these types of conversations are so important. Yeah, and that, so I feel like the huge thing that has made a difference in my healing journey, and I'm sure both of you could agree, I, I was very public with my journey when all of it was going on. Um, and I've been public since as far as coming forward and all of that. Um, and so it, you can't, people will reach out to you and you find other people through that with their stories. And I found other survivors that I immediately became very close with. And especially when it's, you know, childhood sexual abuse, and then especially from the church, um, it's such a unique and strange experience that if you, it really is the kind of thing if you have an experience, you just want to understand um, some of the feelings and some of the just weird things that come out of it and things that I didn't know how to talk to with anyone, or I felt shameful or even admitting some things. And then talking with other girls that have gone through it and realizing like, wait, it's not just me. <laughs> and this was such an isolating and lonely journey that I went on for so long. And then finding out there are hundreds of me out there and all of us shared this experience thinking it was just us. And finding that group and community of survivors who are now some of my closest friends that I talk to on a daily basis made me feel normal. <laughs> and that was something I had not felt in such a long time. And even though our experiences were far from normal, talking about it with each other in such a like lighthearted way brought so much healing and so much like, this is why these conversations are so important because I wouldn't have found any of these girls if we hadn't have just spoken up. And I don't know, I've, I've found so much healing in just that conversation. Because like you said, sometimes talking about it with people that have never experienced trauma, or just are not, I don't know, educated about it. It's, I'm, I always get so nervous, I'm gonna hear the like, wasn't that so long ago, though? Like, why are you talking about it? And I, it's like, I, I don't want to talk about it with people who haven't experience that kind of trauma because I'm just so nervous of hearing that. And I, I don't want to hear that and finding that community, you know, you're safe with it. 
Wow. Well, I think that's the perfect note to end on with just like that survivor community and having those people. And I'm so happy I connected with you as well, like how many years ago now? And I know it's right? been a long time. Right. And um, I just remember just like the nervousness of even like meeting because I felt like meeting another survivor. It's just like that feeling, you know? Yes. So we want to thank you for coming on the program today. Where can we find you on social media, everything, if we want to connect? Um, so I'm mainly only on Instagram, which is just rach.peach. Um, but yeah, I'm on Instagram. <laughs> well, speaking of that community and, and with people who know what you're going through and who, you know, it's, if you know, you know. And I always say to Tara, we're all a part of this, this club the squad that no one really wants to be a part of, but we are all a part of the Survivor Squad. Rachel Peach, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Wow, that's quite a story. Yeah, I just really love how Rachel went and buried that box. That's something I would do. That was pretty cool. And I think that it just further showed the intent that, you know, she felt like something wasn't right at the time, but didn't know how to say it wasn't right. And I think, you know, this is a lesson to all of us. You know, obviously, some people can re unfortunately relate to Rachel's circumstance. Some people can't. But I think the lesson to sort of take away with all of this is that, you know, you got to trust your instincts sometimes. You really do. Like, if you're, if you're, if everything is screaming at you to just, this is a bad situation, you know, that's how I grew up. I think, you know, this is how you, you dealt with John Meehan. Like you got to trust your intuition. You really do. And this is another lesson in that. Yeah, no. And it's unfortunate. And it's so interesting, though, how these perpetrators are able to groom and use parts of, you know, in the instance of, say, Lindsay Williams too, like groom through religion. And that's yeah. huge to me because that's supposed to be a safe space. That's supposed to be someone that's your family, your brother in Christ, someone that's supposed to look after you. Yeah. And I, you know, I remember, and, and particularly when we talked to Lindsay, I remember having friends that were growing up in the church and and, and and now I'm as I've heard all these stories, I can't I kind of go back in my head and just wonder like what these kids that I grew up with went through because it was it seemed very secretive, obviously, and you know they were separated from us in a lot of ways, and and I'm and you know I hope that they don't have these similar stories, but they might. Who knows? Um, anyways, uh, survivors, we we are so grateful to meet all of you here at Obsessed Fest. Well, why don't you guys also check out our Ethical True Crime podcasting course? You guys can email SurvivorSquadPod at gmail.com to get some more information so that you guys can join. It's very exclusive. It's a lot of work, but you're going to learn basically everything from the start of using a microphone, recording, how to monetize, and also do some ethical true crime research with Haley Gray. Yeah, and, and how to create the content is and, and ethical true crime content. And we're excited to offer that. There will be links to all of that in the show notes of today's episode. On that note, survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. 
please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad. 